exercise and what, um, what could be better in future review conferences. And then after that, my second point is to go on to our own stock taking here, future issues for international justice. And I've been asked to focus on issues uh, within uh, complementarity, whether that's for reflection at a review conference or for our own thinking. So the conference at Kampala was an interesting one because it had this hybrid character. It actually had two tracks. The, the one track was um, just like a normal diplomatic conference, diplomats getting together in working groups, negotiating to adopt amendments to the basic instruments. And, and that, of course, produced the crime of aggression, which we've been discussing here today. But the second track was a stock-taking exercise, and it was interesting because it was more like a, an academic discussion. It had panels um, and deliberations and so on. So you have a formal track to adopt amendments, and then you have this more organic track to just uh, discuss some issues. Um, and I, I think that stock-taking was a very good idea. I think that that kind of um, getting the stakeholders together for that sort of deliberation um, is something that could have a really good impact for two reasons. Uh, one is that the ICC faces all sorts of new issues, new contexts, and we need some new collective understandings of how to deal with that. And the second is it could help us strengthen the political commitment of states to the court. Um, I, I personally have a fear that um, as the ICC has become a kind of normal fixture, that um, there's been a loss of passion um, from a lot of um, the state supporters. So the whole relationship's become much more technocratic. Um, so I thought something like stock taking is a great way to re-engage the imagination of these uh, state representatives, get them invested, get them to internalize. So it's great. I also thought they, they picked some very good topics for stock taking. The topics were cooperation, complementarity, peace and justice, and impact on victims and affected communities. So I thought that was all good. Um, my one uh, critique would be that I felt the state's parties tended to avoid the complex issues. And by avoiding the complex issues, I think it was a big missed opportunity. I think the review conference should be something uh, big and visionary. It should be a constitutional moment. And uh, instead, uh, in playing it safe, um, they, 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 they didn't seize on an opportunity uh, as much as they could have. I'll, I'll give some examples. Um, there were discussions on cooperation, which produced a, a resolution at the end. And the first four paragraphs of the resolution say in four different ways that states are obligated to meet their obligations under the Rome Statute, which is already evident as a matter of treaty law. So uh, yeah, I, didn't, I didn't think that, that took us very much further. Um, there was one on impact uh, of the court on victims and affected communities. It made, again, a very sensible, safe... I mean, I don't object to anything in the resolution, but it, it had provisions like the court should continue to optimize the strategic planning process. Well, okay, that's, I'm, you know, I'm all for optimizing strategic planning processes. That's all good, but that's not visionary, right? There's no blood in that. That's, that's just the usual technocratic process. Um, there was de debates on peace and justice. And uh, it was basically a series of states came in and they all said peace is good, justice is good, peace and justice are not in contradiction, except sometimes. <laughs> uh, when they are, then that will require careful thought. Thank you very much. So, um, uh, and that didn't even produce a document, so, so, so a little bit shy. I thought the complementarity was the best. Uh, I think it went the furthest in terms of adding to the established concept. It was a great chair, ably uh, chaired by uh, Bill Shabas, who's here. Um, and it produced messages. Um, states need to be doing more 
to conduct the prosecutions, and we should think about ways to help each other. So I thought the complementarity was the most valuable one. But even there, the states' parties, they sort of skipped over what I thought was the most interesting issue, like um, uh, issues like positive complementarity, which I'll come back to, but that's the issue of how can we use the ICC to motivate states to do the prosecutions themselves? What, what exactly can the ICC do? What's its role? Um, I'll, I'll come back to that, but they, 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 um, they largely skirted that. Um, and I have to also say, too, with deference and understanding to every, everyone here who was a delegate, I completely understand why you want your conference to run smoothly, you want consensus, you want to stick to safe topics, we want a success. But the downside is if you do something that's safe and anodyne, it's not valuable. And let's think back to the Rome conference that first made the ICC statute. It was the opposite of safe. It was risky, it was visionary. The Rome conference could have failed. And I think a review conferences should mark major milestones like that, and they should take bold, historic, difficult decisions. So my suggestion for future review conferences is actually that they should be more ambitious by being narrower, which sounds contradictory. But by having topics that were too large, there wasn't any time for any real depth, and we had delegation after delegation just giving this sort of survey of platitudes. Um, and instead, if we do narrow, defined, controversial questions where we need some sort of strategic or policy decision, um, I think that would be more useful. I think we have to update our um, we have to update our vision of the ICC. And um, so, what do I mean when I say update our vision? I think that the context that the ICC works in are diff they're not quite the same as the context that we were imagining at the time of the Rome Conference making it. Um, and it's because of these new contexts, we need to have a new common understanding of how to have the best impact. Um, and I could give lots of examples. I'm just going to give one example of how the context differed from what we were expecting. I think that most delegates had what I would call an assumption of aversion. We assumed that states would not like scrutiny of things on their own territory. So as a result, we thought that ratifications would come in slowly. We thought the court would not have a lot to do. Uh, we thought if the court did get a case, the state would fight it off by bringing fake proceedings and, and, and they would use complementarity. But instead of aversion, we've had the opposite. We've had rapid ratification, so the court's overloaded, creating questions of situation selection and, and so on, how to prioritize. And on top of that, states turn out to be quite happy to let the ICC do the prosecutions and push that over. Um, and so for some, some issues like this, the Rome Statute's not quite... It only gives us limited guidance on how to deal with it, so we need to figure out how to manage those things. So that brings me to the second part of what I want to talk to you about is some of these things that may be some narrow, difficult topics that we could be uh, uh, figuring out at a future review conference or maybe just you know amongst ourselves. Um, and again, I was asked to do complementarity, so I have two. One is this concept of positive complementarity, and another thing that could be discussed is a concept of called burden sharing. So positive complementarity is, how can the ICC induce, cajole, pressure states to act? Um, and the prosecutor at one point even said, maybe we can assist states by sharing our evidence and experience. Darryl, no, yeah. Just one quick yeah. 
There may be some people in this room who are not technical on the legal side. Right. Could you just say a few words about what you are talking about when you talk about complementarity? Just to define that term so people Okay, know. of course. So complementarity is the relationship between the ICC and states. States have the first uh, opportunity to prosecute. The ICC can only intervene if um, states are, are failing to bring genuine proceedings. So, so this is the relationship. But in addition to just being a legal rule that stops the court from acting, maybe it could be something bigger. So uh, the positive complementarity is how can we use the court to motivate states to do it, do it themselves. Um, now the problem is when the prosecutor spoke of the ICC assisting uh, states to do their prosecutions, a lot of delegations reacted very negatively to that. Um, so there were a lot of interventions saying, the ICC should not be duplicating an aid agency. We don't want to have giant bureaucracies, et cetera, et cetera. All of which is, of course, I agree with. Of course, it's obvious. But I, 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 don't, it's, I don't think anyone was ever arguing the opposite. So I think the idea got, got, got misunderstood, which is unfortunate. The point of it is actually this. Uh, you have this court that's faced with an overload of cases plus state apathy. The ICC has to find ways to try to motivate states to do the business and so the ICC can mu multiply its impact. So let's talk about concretely what sort of things can the ICC do. One thing it can do, it can sort of threaten to intervene in a situation and see if that scares states to act. That's one. Is that allowed? I think it surely has to be allowed. Um, the idea that the ICC could give evidence back to states instead of taking cooperation to give cooperation, that surprised and worried a lot of people, but it's actually in the statute. It's in, it's in Article 93, so that's one. But then there's more grand ideas of what the court could do, and that's where I think we have to debate because there's different reasonable points of view. Um, can the ICC uh, send people to conferences to share um, experiences on mass crime investigations? Uh, can it share its legal tools? Uh, things like this. Um, and it's debatable, so let's talk about it, let's figure it out. Um, if the ICC want to do that in a major way, then maybe that's wrong because it's taking away from the core mandate. But if the ICC could do a few small things like that, um, and it had a cost-effective impact promoting justice, maybe that's something we, we should welcome. And now my, very, my final issue to raise is this issue of burden sharing. When the ICC first comes across a state that's not doing anything, the state's not investigating or prosecuting, there's a fork in the road, there's a question. When should we try to push the state to act? When should we try to harass them and make them act? That's positive complementarity. The other fork in the road, though, is burden sharing. When might the ICC just go ahead and say, fine, we'll take the case. You're not doing it. We'll, we'll take the case. Um, and that, that, that's, that's the burden sharing concept where there's this sort of consensual relationship where the, where the state doesn't want it and the ICC says, fine, we'll do it. Um, it's an important concept because about half the situations the court is doing are based on this idea of, uh, of burden sharing. And I think, I think burden sharing is legal under, under the complementarity rules, but it still raises policy questions that we have to figure out. So uh, one, one policy question is, in that fork in the road, when should we try to push the state to do it and when can we just take it on ourselves? Um, the Office of the Prosecutor has not made clear <laughs> what the policy is on when they go left and when they go right, so, so that could be clarified. And uh, also, um, 
When the ICC works in a constructive way with states, that raises its own questions and, and risks. So a lot of people get worried about independence and impartiality. So um, can you maintain independence <coughs> and impartiality and do burden sharing? If so, how do you do it? Uh, how do you convey to the public that you are maintaining uh, independence and impartiality? So, so those are my um, th th those are some of the points that I think should be discussed. So, in, so to sum up. The stock-taking in Kampala. I think stock-taking is a good idea. I think we need to keep states talking about these discussions, uh, and we can help build consensus about the kind of new, new problems we face. I think that stock-taking should focus on smaller but really controversial topics, and we should try to actually like solve some things by, by making policies. I suggested some possible topics. One is this idea of positive complementarity, and the other one that should be discussed is this idea of burden sharing. But there's loads of others, uh, including um, what should the criteria be for situation selection, how should we define gravity, should regional balance be a goal, and that will be uh, in the purview of Phil Clark. Cool. I'm actually going to speak from up here because I tend to wave my hands a lot and I'm very worried that I might take an eye out <laughs> if I do. Um, Daryl, in very characteristic form, was very modest about his own connection to the Rome Statute. But when Daryl talks about complementarity, it's worth listening to because he drafted the key uh, articles of the statute, particularly Article 17. So if anybody's at all confused or baffled by complementarity, Daryl's your man, um, particularly after a couple of pints. Very briefly, I, I, I want to pick up, I guess, on a, a couple of the topics that Daryl mentioned, namely uh, these questions of cooperation and complementarity, which came up in Kampala. But I think to begin, uh, in terms of taking the title of today's event, Beyond Kampala, I'd actually like to kind of reconfigure the title to think about where does the ICC find itself beyond the events in Kampala in the last three or four weeks? Uh, particularly the fact that the Ugandan government has been shooting its own civilians in the streets uh, following very peaceful protests, not just in Kampala, of course, but in places like Gulu and elsewhere in the country. What does this tell us about the impact of the court, given that the ICC has been so heavily involved in Uganda for the last five or six years? And I think the events in Uganda in the last few weeks certainly should give pause to concern about the deterrent impact of the court and the role that it may or may not play in these very contested political situations. It's very peculiar to me, I think, that in many discussions of the ICC, we still hear this idea that the court is somehow above politics, that international law exists in its purview, sort of hovering above the, the political space. And I think the concern that I have about this idea of law being above politics uh, is that actually it means that we're not paying enough attention to the impact that the court is having, particularly in Africa at the moment, and also the way in which political dynamics within certain African countries are shaping the way that the ICC actually goes about its work. And I think given that we've spent so much time today talking about the crime of aggression, Inevitably, that means talking about how the ICC relates to bodies like the Security Council, how it relates to domestic states. This gets us into this realm of politics. So I want to say something, I guess, about these, these broader political dynamics. And I really want to argue that the ICC is uh, an inherently political body. 
It affects politics on the ground, especially in Africa at the moment. Uh, it is affected by politics. Particularly the Office of the Prosecutor is making explicitly political decisions. And so I think this means we have to analyze the ICC in these explicitly political terms. And there's often been, I guess, an emphasis on the peculiarity of the ICC operating in the midst of ongoing conflict. Because of its temporal jurisdiction after 2002, inevitably this means the court will often have to operate in cases of ongoing conflict. But I think perhaps what we've seen in the last few years in Africa in particular is that the court's work is, is complicated politically on the ground because of a couple of other dimensions, one of which is also operating in the midst of ongoing peace processes. I think this has been a serious challenge to the court. And also operating in the context of heavily contested political spaces in Africa, where electoral politics have also shaped the way that the ICC has operated. And for the sake of this, this presentation, I really want to focus on the situations in Uganda and Congo, um, countries that I've been, I've been doing fieldwork in really for the last six or seven years, looking particularly at the way that the ICC has actually gone about its work on the ground in these two countries. And very briefly, I want to talk about three things. I want to say something very briefly about state referrals. Secondly, I want to say something about the domestic political impact that the ICC is having in Uganda and Congo. And then finally, to come back to these questions of complementarity and say something about the impact that the court is having on domestic justice in these two African states. So to begin with something on state referrals, it's a very common critique of the court, we, we see it time and again, that because thus far it's focused only on African uh, situations, that it is a neo-colonialist actor intervening unjustifiably in African states. And I think there are some justified concerns about the court only focusing on African cases. But I think this argument of neo-colonialism is overstated. Firstly, I think the court is much weaker than that critique would have us believe. But actually, as I'm going to suggest in a moment, the court is overly reliant on state cooperation and as an independent actor often finds itself hamstrung, especially in the African cases that I'm talking about. So the critique tends to overstate the power that the court actually has. And secondly, the neo-colonialist critique underestimates the ability of domestic governments to manipulate the ICC to its own political ends. So it also tends to pay insufficient attention to the ways in which governments have proven, I think, very effective at using the court in certain ways. And the ultimate danger of the view that the ICC somehow hovers above politics is that it doesn't allow us to fully understand how the court may be used for quite unpredictable and sometimes quite destructive ways. And I think, if anything, this is the main reason we need to put the ICC very firmly in this context of domestic politics in Africa, to try and understand what the outcomes of the court are and how it may have been manipulated to date. The current prosecutor's common response to the neo-colonialist critique is to say, well, you can hardly accuse the court of intervening unjustifiably in Africa because look at the number of voluntary state referrals that we've had from countries like Uganda, Congo, Central African Republic. We're hardly intervening unjustifiably when states themselves say, well, we need your assistance, please, can you help us out? But I think the state referrals in Uganda and Congo are significantly more complex than the prosecutor would often have us believe. And I think that there's a very slippery distinction 
between state referrals and the prosecutor using his independent proprio motu powers. That actually, in the case of Uganda and Congo, there's been very little distinction between these two modes of referral. And this is something that I've, I've published in, in various places already, but it was amazing to me how little discussion there was in the early days of the Ugandan and Congolese cases. That, in actual fact, these weren't really voluntary state referrals. Actually, there had been detailed negotiations between the Office of the Prosecutor and domestic political actors in those two countries for at least a year leading up to the state referrals. If anything, the prosecutor chased these cases. The initiation of these two referrals very much came from the Hague rather than from the domestic capitals. And the research that I've done in Kampala and Kinshasa over these years, and also interviewing officials in the Hague, shows how reluctant the Ugandan and Congolese governments were at the outset to refer their cases to the court. There was a real suspicion about this new global body and what impact it may have on domestic governments. And so the task of the Office of the Prosecutor actually was to convince very reluctant states that it was in their own political interests to refer to the court. Now, of course, we know that the Office of the Prosecutor has a real incentive to try and generate state referrals. And one of the real reasons for it is, of course, to try and secure state cooperation right from the outset and thus make the ICC's, or at least the OTP's, work on the ground all the much, much, more, uh, much easier. What was interesting to me was that whenever I presented this argument in public gatherings, particularly in The Hague, there'd always be this kind of forest of hands from people from the Office of the Prosecutor saying, well, it's simply not true. We didn't chase these cases. In fact, what the prosecutor says about voluntary state referrals is absolutely the case. Interesting that actually the tone of the Office of the Prosecutor has changed completely on this issue in the last 18 months. In fact, we've even seen policy papers out of OTP admitting quite openly now to the fact that the prosecutor chased the Ugandan and Congolese cases. It's not entirely clear to me why there's only this admission now when there was denial for so long. But I think the fact that there was denial of how active OTP had been in pursuing those cases certainly raises some suspicions about what went on in those political negotiations leading up to state referrals. And I can tell you undoubtedly what the attitude is amongst certain elites in Uganda and in Congo, and, and also I think amongst many people in affected communities. The suspicion is that of course deals were done. That the Office of the Prosecutor had to make certain promises to domestic states to secure those referrals in the first place. And one of the key promises, I think it's suspected, is that the court would not pursue government suspects. That the focus would solely be on members of rebel groups and any members of the domestic military or the executive would get away scot-free. <coughs> to my second point, which is the question of the domestic political impact that the court is having in Uganda and Congo. And I'm going to kind of do this very schematically for the sake of time, but it's fair to say that the court is having, I think, a profound impact on the way that politics actually plays out in these two countries. And what we've seen from the Ugandan and the Congolese governments is that actually they've been all too enthusiastic to employ the ICC in certain ways. In the case of Uganda, it's very clear. Museveni's government saw the ICC eventually as a very convenient way to target the LRA rebel group. And that actually Museveni kind of gave the game away in the initial state referral when he limited the referral only to crimes committed by the LRA. And of course, the prosecutor had to turn around and say, well, actually, we can't limit that at this stage. We've got to keep it nice and broad at this point. 
But I think it told you something about the kinds of negotiations that have been happening in the background. And my suspicion, I guess, looking at what's happened, <coughs> happened in Uganda in the last few weeks, is that this singular focus on rebel cases in Uganda and a refusal by OTP to pursue members of the UPDF, the, the Ugandan Armed Forces, has entrenched a certain notion of impunity within the Ugandan state. But actually, if anything, Museveni has become more confident in his ability to use the UPDF against his own civilians. And I would say that that's one of the key reasons that we've seen the Ugandan government shooting its own civilians in the last few weeks. They look at the international purview and simply say, who actually is going to constrain our behaviour? We already have secured this state cooperation. The court, it seems, is very reluctant to go after Ugandan state officials, and so basically we can do what we like. I presented an argument not too dissimilar to this in The Hague last week at a, an event at the Grotius Centre, and there was someone from OTP who got up in the final panel and said that we could see the impact that the ICC was having on the ground because after the initial shootings in Kampala, the message went out from Museveni that his troops had to constrain their rules of engagement in the streets because there was a concern about prosecutions by the ICC. The forces had to be much more careful. And this was an example of the deterrent effect of the court. And I kind of put my hand up and said, well, it seems to me there might be a more logical kind of conclusion to draw from the events in Kampala in the, in the last few weeks, which is that the Ugandan army thought it was okay to shoot its own civilians in the first place. But actually that suggests that the deterrent effect is very, very <coughs> minimal. And I think you could run a similar argument in the Congolese case. But from President Kabila's point of view, the ICC has become a very useful tool to target political opponents. Jean-Pierre Bemba being the most principal of those. His main uh, opposition, um, opponent, sorry, his main political opponent at the last presidential uh, elections. Kabila now in many ways has a free run through to the, the next presidential elections at the end of this year because of Bemba's removal by the court. And again, we've seen very little proof that the Congolese government and the Congolese army have changed their relationship towards their own civilians because of the court's engagement. We've seen a continuation of government attacks on Congolese civilians, particularly in the east of the country. So it should raise some very important questions about ultimately the deterrent effect of the court and ultimately the kind of political impact that the court is having in Uganda and Congo. My final point is to say something about the ICC's impact on domestic justice. And for the sake of brevity, I'm just going to focus on Congo and not say an enormous amount about Uganda. I think built into the statute and built into many discussions around case selection, the impact of the court, is an assumption that states will be very reluctant to refer their cases to the ICC. I think if we look at the wording of the statute, if we go back and look at the discussions in Rome, there was an assumption that states would want to maintain national sovereignty, that ultimately they would prefer to investigate and prosecute their own cases and only in exceptional circumstances would you see states referring situations to the ICC. But actually, I think if we look at Uganda and Congo, once the states overcame their very early reluctance to refer, actually there was a calculation that this was very, very much in their own interest. And if anything, we've seen an over-enthusiasm for African states to use the court in this way. Specifically, I think some of OTP's policies on the ground, if anything, and this comes, I guess, to Daryl's issue of positive complementarity, my own sense is that, especially in the Congo case, if anything, the ICC has undermined the cause of domestic justice. 
It hasn't catalyzed domestic investigations and prosecutions. If anything, I think it's hamstrung. And the reason for this, again, comes back to this theme of an over-enthusiasm by the Congolese state to invoke the court. If this was an issue that came up in the Ingrajola and Katanga cases. The defence, almost as their opening gambit, said, well, these cases really are inadmissible before the court because there were already domestic proceedings underway in Ituri province in the northeast of Congo. And because of those domestic proceedings, basically these cases cannot be admissible before the court. The prosecution responded very simply by saying, well, we have a letter here from the Congolese authorities that admits that they are unwilling and unable to prosecute these cases. And so therefore there is no impediment whatsoever to these ICC cases going ahead. But there was a mistake here, and again, this comes very much out of my own fieldwork in Ituri over the last five or six years. Yes, the Congolese authorities understood as Kabila's executive, for the reasons I've suggested, of course had every motivation in the world to say, please, take these cases off our hands, we don't want them. There were no proceedings underway, this isn't a serious challenge. Crucially, you get a very different picture if you talk to senior judicial officials in Ituri itself, and this has been a big part of my fieldwork. If we look at Ituri and the judicial system there as a whole, this is a part of Congo that has undergone a massive reform process since 2003, an almost overhaul of the entire judicial system, such that the courts in Bunya Town in particular can point to a very concrete track record of dealing with war crimes and crimes against humanity, including against members of the Congolese armed forces. More specifically than that, and this actually is where Katunga and Nguijolo's defence teams weren't doing their job, there were specific proceedings already underway in Bunya Town against Lubanga, Katunga and Nguijolo. Now the Office of the Prosecutor will often come forward and say, well those proceedings weren't serious. Well, you get a very different view from the judicial actors in Punya, who will say, in fact, investigations were underway. We can show you the dossier. Mm. And the frustration now is, these cases were already underway. We have a reformed judiciary. Why do we need the ICC to intervene in the first place? In actual fact, this is very much the view of, of those judicial actors in Ituri. Our own processes have been undermined because we would have gained so much morale, it would have been such a boost and so much more legitimacy had we been able to prosecute these serious cases in our own courtrooms, but instead we've seen them whisked away to behave to goodness knows what ends. So there's a lacuna here, there's an important issue, which is the court decided to take the word of the domestic government and interpreted the Congolese authorities only as the executive. But I think what's important here is that actually, like most governments, the Congolese state is a deeply divided beast. And you may get a different opinion depending on which actors you actually talk to. The Defence Council should have pushed the issue much further, they should have done their homework in Ituri, and I think they would have seen that actually there was domestic capacity to deal with these very serious cases. Ketunga and Engeljolo, I think now probably very unfairly, will, will be tried in the Hague. To my mind, this undermines the case of domestic justice in Congo, and I think the consequences are negative and very, very much long term. So to summarise, the court is a political beast that's having all manner of crucial political and judicial impacts on the ground. My own sense is that, if anything, in the case of Uganda and Congo, the court has empowered governments that have a tendency to commit massive violations against their own civilians. 
And if we're talking about aggression and we're talking about the political role that the court may or may not play, I think the examples of Uganda and Congo pose some very serious questions. Thanks very much. Thank you very much, Don. You will have noticed that he gave you notice in advance that... Uh, I don't think the mic is on. Do we have to it on? i got to push the button. All right, you're out of order. Uh, he gave me notice in advance, and he gave you notice in advance that uh, in about 10 minutes, he's trying to save my strength from my old age. But uh statement that this would be my final words, I hope it's only at this meeting. <laughs> and... Uh, what I'll try to do within the a lot of time before he beats me up is to uh, give you a quick scan of how it looks to me. Uh, I'm quite sure I'm the oldest man alive who's been dealing the longest time with the problems that you've been discussing here. Um, and I will try to tell you how it looks looking back, how it looks today, uh, what we can do, something new other than what we've been discussing up to now, and then uh, what does it look like for the future. A quick look back, uh, you may be surprised to know that I find the progress has been fantastic. I can recall when I began this work 60 or 70 years ago, no one had ever heard of international criminal law, no one ever thought there could be an international criminal court, no one ever thought there could be a definition of aggression, and I was generally regarded with even more skepticism than I am today. Nevertheless, it's all here. Uh, everybody uh, knows about international humanitarian law, which never existed before. Uh, and in the span of history, this has been a relatively short time, a blink in the eye of time. So uh, this gives cause for optimism. Uh, you look at the problems of today. Uh, these are many technical problems have been discussed here. We sometimes lose sight of the bigger picture. Uh, and I think what it needs is a new approach uh, to some of the difficulties which we've encountered. The problem of defining aggression is something that I worked on for about 30 or 40 years. Uh, there are two volume books that some PhD students here are using now for their theses, I was glad to see. Uh, and uh, I, I say, all right, uh, unfortunately, the nations of the world are not yet ready to agree to give up their sovereign right as they see it, to go to war whenever they think it's in their own interest. I had hoped in Kampala they would take another step forward. That we had Nuremberg which laid down the rule, the rule which I accepted then as a very young man. The law must apply equally to everyone. Aggression is the supreme international crime because in a war, all the other crimes are committed. I knew that as a combat soldier. I have seen all the crimes committed, murder, rape, mutilation, destruction, you know, everything you can imagine. I have personally witnessed at very, very close range. And uh, so I took all that very seriously in the hope that we would have a more peaceful world by simply agreeing, as we had at Nuremberg, certain things you can no longer do. The world has changed. Well, it has changed in many ways, but it has not changed with regard to the willingness of states to surrender what they consider an ancient sovereign right. And we have not been able to mobilize enough public opinion to uh, discourage that position. I too am very disappointed, some of you mentioned it, 
uh, about the role of many of the NGOs, Amnesty International, Human Rights Watch has been mentioned here, Soros is uh, Open Society Institute. These are institutes we've all supported and encouraged over the years. Aggression? No. They don't want to touch aggression. Uh, beyond them, their competence. They give all kinds of absurd excuses. The prosecutor will be overburdened, was one of the arguments. I asked the prosecutor, would you be overburdened? <laughs> I said, not me. <laughs> Great lawyers representing the State Department said it's a wobbly bicycle. We can't put anything more on it. You have a wobbly bicycle. All you do is press on the pedal a little harder, and I go. <laughs> so they didn't know much about the bicycling, obviously. <laughs> However, so these arguments were not persuasive. What they were doing was they were saying, let us find some plausible excuse for the truth, which is we want the right to go to war when we decide, and we're not going to subject our jurisdiction to any of these foreigners when we don't know and we don't trust. That is the truth. But to put it bluntly that way doesn't sound good. It sounds rather stupid to say that you prefer war to law. Uh, so they say, well, the law is not clear. We have to clarify this. And no matter what you do, they will always come and say, no, 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 that i got a better way of saying it. And they can argue at every point for 20 years. I know, because I sat there for 20 years and listened. I used to be seven feet tall. It's wore me down. <laughs> now, what can we do about that? We can change. The door on the courthouse door, the courthouse door is locked as far as aggression is concerned. For the unforeseen future, they have thrown in the date of 2017, which says no sooner than 2017. These are lawyers. When you say no sooner, doesn't mean that on 2017. It means no sooner. It can be 2057, 2097, or never. Uh, and it will still be correct. So, and that was done deliberately. Not because it is just whatever, but no sooner. Okay? The door is locked. I accept that. They have a right. Sovereign states do what they like. I don't know how long the budget will hold out, how long their population will tolerate it, but they do that. Let's accept that. Let's take a new approach. We go into two different doors. We've been looking at the world from trying to correct the temple of law from up, down. Well, you can't build a structure that way, I've learned in my sorrow. We have to build from the bottom up, which means you go to the nation states and you start with the national jurisdictions, which has been discussed here at great length. And uh, as far as some states, the United States specifically, if the right wing says, look, we don't trust the court, fine. Complementarity. Write one sentence into the criminal code saying that all the crimes approved by Kampala or by Rome are subject to punishment in the federal courts of the United States. We have much more crimes courts going now. We have many terrorists in jail right now. And they do that, they pull the rug out from under the ICC. And uh, any time the prosecutor wants the case, he'll get it referred to him. The United States will investigate it for 25 years, and uh, that'll be the end of the case. So this should have some attraction for the right wing as well, and I hope it will. Uh, that is one approach, the national approach. Those nations which are opposed to aggression should clearly write it in, and we've heard from uh, uh, the representative of the parliamentarians as well as from uh, our distinguished Austrian representative that uh, they're already working on that. We've got to push it further. 
Then we have another idea which has not yet been enunciated. And uh, I've been hesitant about enunciating it because I think the State Department will immediately organize a committee to try to chop it down. And it's simple. It is my conviction that uh, war-making, illegal war-making, which means not in self-defense and not as approved by the Security Council of the United Nations, that is illegal war-making. That illegal war-making, knowing that it will unavoidably and inevitably produce the death of large numbers of innocent people is a crime against humanity. Don't use the word aggression, that's a naughty word. It's a crime against humanity, and I talked now to the young people. Is it not a crime against humanity to send young people out to fight a war which has not been authorized, which is not in self-defense, and which has not been approved by the Security Council, and get all these nice people killed? Is that not a crime against humanity? And it's happening today. So let us call it by its proper name, crime against humanity. There's an area which can excite the young people, and my hopes lie with the young people. I listed among the young people, Judge Kawa. <laughs> Everybody is young compared to me. <laughs> However, generally, we need the young people to recognize that their lives are at stake. Crime against humanity will be committed in every war. I guarantee you, as a combat soldier, with five battle stars, which means that I was in every major battle in World War II in Europe. There will never be a war without atrocities. Rape and atrocities go together in every single war and always will, because illegal lawmaking is the biggest atrocity of all. So let's change our focus away from the crime of aggression to the crime against humanity and begin with the young people who will recognize their lives are in peril and then push that until we have enough public support by uh, such noble institutions, newly founded by my son here, uh, this Global Institute, which means a global communication network, <laughs> where one person can send information all around the world. So we use the new technology, appeal primarily to the young people, national jurisdictions, and if we do, I'm hopeful, I'm not sure I'll be here to see it, but I might come back if I get a pass from the devil. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, that the time will come when we will accelerate the movement toward a more humane world. And I want to use the occasion before I sit down to thank Judge Call again and to thank the German government again for their interest. They have been in the forefront of willingness to proceed along the lines that you have been discussing here of condemning aggression. They have known what the significance of war meant to them. And I have known it because I was there, but I was on the other side. Uh, so. Uh, there is hope. Don't give up, as I say. Try harder. And uh, from the progress that I have already pointed out to you, we've come most of the way already. So keep going. Good luck. Thank you.